really been overwhelmed this week thinking about the, the marvelous ways in which God works in our lives. The, the marvelous ways that God deals with us. How He, how he meets our, our needs. How he, he brings us along to the, to the place where we need to be. Because we realize that, you know, if you've lived any length of time and you've taken an honest look at yourself, you realize there, there's a lot there that, that needs improving. <laughs> there's a lot of issues there. And how God works in our lives. As believers, uh, He works in situations and, you know, we might look at a specific situation, a hardship that we might be dealing with, and you realize that God is working in that situation and He has a, he has a will that He's trying to to uh, perform and fulfill in that situation. But then in allowing us to go through that situation, he's also doing a work in us. He's an indescribable God. It's amazing how he works. And this morning, we're going to go to Mark chapter 9. And I want to I really look at an example of how God works in a man's life. And the place really... The place where all of us need to get. God needs to take us from where we are naturally and bring us to this place so that we are ready to receive a miracle. Do you know God wants you to do a God wants to do a miracle in your life? I know some of you are perhaps jumping to what that miracle might be. The, the physical need that you might have or the problem you need solved. Well, there's an issue in all of our lives that is more important than any of that. And that's the miracle that Jesus wants to perform. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse number 14. In the context of, of Mark 9, uh, Jesus has taken his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John... He's taken them up into a a private place, into a mountain. And there on that mountain, those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw Jesus, but not just Jesus as a man. They saw Jesus as God, as the indescribable God. They saw His glory. They saw Him communing and having fellowship with saints that have long gone in the past, Moses and Elijah, They heard him speak about his death that he was going to accomplish on Calvary. It was an incredible experience that they saw. But now all of that was was over. They had some private teaching time with Jesus, and they descend back down to the mountain from the mountain, back down to, to earth, so to speak, back to reality. And what they find at the bottom of the mountain is a chaotic situation. Verse 14, Mark chapter 9, says, And when he came to his disciples, and so these are the other, the other nine, uh, Peter, James, and John were with him, but the other disciples, when he came to them, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And that word questioning means disputing. This was not a Q&A where the scribes were getting all of their questions answered and, and finding information that they did not know. No, this was, this was a debate. This was 
a, a fight going on, if you could say, a, a verbal sparring between the multitude and the scribes and the disciples. Verse 15, And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluteth him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. Jesus saith unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What a story. What a story that's before us. We see Jesus dealing with the situation. There are multiple characters in this situation. There are, of course, the, the multitude, the scribes that are here. And, of course, they have their bent. They have their attitude. And what Jesus does is a direct counter, a direct answer to their questions. We're not going to really look at that this morning. We're also not going to look at what Jesus was doing in the life of these disciples, who, for, for whatever reason, and this is what they were struggling with, we don't know why, we were not able to help him like we thought we would be able to do so. And, of course, Jesus has something he's trying to teach them. We could have continued reading in the passage and seen what he was trying to teach them. We don't have time for that this morning. Which means there are two other characters in this story. There is the man, and there is his son. And we see Jesus performing a tremendous miracle in which... This demonic spirit was cast out of, of this young boy and this son was finally restored, finally in his right mind, and a miracle had transpired. We read about these miracles in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The things that Jesus did. And in those miracles, in every single one of them, they're not just nice tales or nice stories that we come to and say, oh, isn't that, isn't that nice? Look at what Jesus did. It was so kind of him to, to, uh, to work a miracle on this man's behalf. No, there's, there's something here. 
Because we realize the Bible is very plain. John tells us in his gospel in John 20 and verse 31, he says that many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. We don't have recorded for us all the miracles that Jesus did. There were many, many more. However, John says these are written. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. In other words, not everything, not every miracle that Jesus performed is recorded for us. However, the ones that are recorded for us, there are specific lessons that are designed to lead us to a place of belief. These are written that she might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. These are recorded, these are written, so that we would believe that not only Jesus is who he claims to be, but Jesus can deliver, can bring eternal life to those that learn these very important lessons. So here in Mark chapter 9, we're going to try to uncover at least one of those lessons for us here today. There's a, there's a man, a father, who came to Jesus and came, to, came upon specifically Jesus' followers, the nine disciples. And the reason why he came is he was curious enough to seek after an answer for an issue, a problem that was, that was plaguing his life. And you can imagine, we're going to get into it in just a second, you can imagine as a parent what this must have been like for him to experience. What it must have been like to go through on a regular basis. So as a father, he comes to Jesus. He comes to the disciples and he's seeking for the deliverance that he's heard that other people have experienced. He's seeking for the possibility of a miracle like he has heard others experience for themselves. The problem is it didn't work for him. He brought his son to the followers of Jesus who, by the way, had in the past done things like miracles. They had cast out devils and demonic spirits. They had healed the sick in the past. It should have worked. But it didn't. It didn't. And there was, I believe there is a specific reason why it didn't work. And one of those specific reasons, I think there's actually more than one, but one of those specific reasons is because Jesus was gently bringing um, this man, this father, along to the place where he was finally ready to receive the miracle that Jesus wanted to perform. And I want to say this very plainly and clearly this morning, that there is a miracle. The Bible calls it salvation. There is a miracle that Jesus wants to perform in every single person's life who happens to be in this auditorium this morning. Jesus wants to perform this miracle in your life. But first, you have to be ready for it. You have to be in a position to receive it. And you'll see what I mean as we go into the message. First of all, I want you to notice in verse number 17, notice this boy's problem. 
verse 17, the father describes the issue that they are experiencing. He says, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. Verse 22, he says, Oft times the spirit, since he was a child, cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. This boy has a painful problem. What's described for us is that there was a a spirit from the demonic world. And there is a spirit world. There is more to this world than the things that we can see, the things that we can touch, the things that we can feel. There is an enemy. There is Satan does exist. He does have a will he wants to perform in each of our lives. He has those spirits that do his bidding, that, that, uh, that uh, he can command to do what he wants. And it's apparent in this situation, we don't exactly know why or what, what, what exactly is going on here. But other than this boy was inhabited and controlled by a demonic spirit. And this demonic spirit when he was in charge, when he was calling the shots, created a very painful problem. A painful problem for the boy physically and a painful problem for his father emotionally and spiritually. But in this painful problem, there is a very clear parallel to the problem of sin and what sin does to each of us. Now, we might look at a demon spirit and go, oh, that, that's kind of freaky. That's kind of weird. You know, I'm glad those things don't happen today. Well, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be so quick to say that. See, the devil has a, a, a will that he wants to work, and he is still alive and, and, and well today. He's still working his plans in each of our lives. And whether or not it, it, uh, it, it, it uh, uh, shows itself in this particular way, or whether or not it just shows up in our lives, in our propensity to sin, the problem is still the same. Notice some details from verse 18 and verse 22. It talks about wheresoever he, that's the spirit, taketh him, that's his son. In other words, the spirit decided this is where we're going to go and the boy was just along for the ride. And the idea of it, him being taken is the idea of being seized upon. It's almost as if the Spirit seized upon him and said, we're doing this. And the first thing that's mentioned here in that seizing is that whenever or wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And that word tear or teareth means to throw down. Literally, thrown down to the ground, and then specifically it means a, some sort of convulsion. Now sometimes... Seizures, things like that, are physical in nature. This was not a physical seizure. This is something that is much deeper than that. And so this, this demon was in control of this boy, throwing him to the ground, uh, causing him to go into convulsion. There's a very clear parallel to sin in our own lives, in the fact that sin controls us. It controls us. The Bible describes us in Romans 6 and verse 17. We're described as the servants of sin. The slaves of sin. So just like this spirit took this boy and said, we're going this way, we're doing this. 
Our own sin takes us and says, we're doing this, we're going here, we're experiencing this. That's what sin does. Sin controls us. Which is why Jesus looked into the eyes of the Pharisees and he said, ye are of your father the devil, because the lust of your father ye will do. There's no argument here. There's no fight here. You just go along for the ride. And if you've been perceptive for any length of time spiritually in your life, you know that this, ha- that this very thing happens. There's a sin. There is a temptation. You know that God doesn't want you to do it. You know that it's sin against God. You, you know that there's a different path. But the lusts of your father you do. It's happened too often in, in my life before, before salvation, before that miracle take, uh, took place in my life where there wasn't a fight. It was, now, perhaps it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't exhibit itself in obvious, known, embarrassing sin, but sin is still sin, whether it is drunkenness and drug abuse or whether it is pride and self-righteousness, sin is still sin. And there's a unique sin for all of us that carries us away. Sin controls us. Wheresoever the Spirit taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth. The idea of foaming is foaming at the mouth. Talk about something that is embarrassing. To have no control of our mouth and there's spit and foam and dribble just coming from our face. A shameful thing. And you know what? This morning, sin brings shame. When we participate in sin, when we act in sin, when we violate God's commands, it brings shame into our lives. We're like Adam and Eve. As soon as we eat of the fruit that God said, do not eat of that fruit, we eat of it, and immediately we are ashamed. And when God comes knocking, when God comes calling, instead of welcoming God, we turn around and run away from God. We hide from Him. Sin brings shame. Wheresoever the Spirit took him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth. There's one thing that... There's, there's, there, there's not a very high temptation for me, thankfully, to go around, you know, biting people. And I'm thankful for most of you that's not, a, you know, a high temptation on your list. It's something that you want to do. However, it does happen. In those times of extreme emotion in which we completely lose control of ourselves. We're, we get, we're, we're so enraptured with, with anger, with bitterness, that it, we're, we're driven to that. And that does happen. But more so, there is the parallel with sin. That sin destroys our inhibitions. Those things that we would say, I would never do that. That is extreme. What does sin do? It tears down those inhibitions and now we find ourselves doing those things in which we would say, I would never do this. I would never go that far. I would never do it to this extreme and sin carries us along and our inhibitions are destroyed and we're doing those things that we said, I'll never do. He gnashed with his teeth. In verse 22, it talks about how the Spirit would cast this boy into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. In the same way in our lives, sin brings pain. 
sin destroys. Whether that's through the fire and the pain of being burned, or whether that's through the water and the threat to life that is drowning in that water, sin brings destruction into our lives. And in verse 18, it talks about how he pineth away. And the idea of pining away is withering and wasting away. Sin destroys us within. Perhaps on the outside, everything looks good. Perhaps on the outside, we display ourselves as having a good time and having fun and and just enjoying life. But on the inside, we're eaten away. We're withering away. We're pining away because sin is destroying us from within. This is what sin does. This is why you and I need the miracle of salvation. This is why we need to be rescued from our own sin because sin is working death in our lives. In the book of James, we're told, and we have to be told this because uh, this this is something that we often do. In the Bible, it says there in James, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. So, it's not because of God that we're tempted and that we sin. Oh no, nothing nothing could be further from the truth. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. See, there's that sin. It, it, uh, It targets those lusts, our own lusts, And that that sin pulls at us, that sin tempts us, and we're drawn away, not of anyone else's lust, but of our own lust, and then we're enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it it has a child. This is literally what it's saying. It, It conceives and it brings forth sin. And here's the key phrase. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. It brings forth death. And so just in the same way, now, we're looking at this boy in the physical, the physical vein. We, we see the physical things that are happening to this boy. But in the same way, those same things spiritually are happening to each of us. This is how the Bible describes us. Whether or not we like that picture doesn't really matter. It is the reality. It was, it's a painful problem. But it's also a permanent problem. And I'm using the word permanent because Jesus asked the Father, how long, in verse 21, how long has this been going on? How long has this been the case? And His answer, ever since He was a child. In other words, kind of from the beginning. From very early on. And you know what? Our our spiritual problem of sin exhibits itself very early on. Even today, perhaps we have learned how to live within a certain set of boundaries, and we do so for our own self-preservation. All right? I live a certain way because, you know, I don't want to bring harm into my life. I, I, I have a certain set of boundaries. Those appetites of sin are still way down deep in our hearts. They still are lurking in us, all the way from when we were a child. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, 
that what comes from within is what defiles a person. Now, the Pharisees, they have the opposite view. And you know what? Our world today has the opposite view. It is those things that come from without that defile a person. And Jesus said, no, it's not what comes from without. It's what comes from within. He said these kind of things. He lists evil thoughts come from within. Evil thoughts, thoughts of pride, thoughts of rebellion, thoughts of selfishness. Those evil thoughts, they don't, they're not planted from the outside. No, no, no. They come from the inside. And that's what defiles a man. He mentions evil thoughts. He mentions murders. Murders come from within. And Jesus equated murder with hatred, anger, and bitterness. Those things, jealousy, those things, they're, they're not foisted upon us. They come from within us. He mentions adulteries and fornication. This is lust. This is sexual sin. This is pornography. Again, not something that comes from without. It's something that comes from within. He mentions false witnesses lying. He mentions blasphemies. All of those come from the heart. They come from within. And they are those things that defile a man. These are those wrongful thoughts and attitudes that have been within us from the very beginning, from when we were a child. And we might have learned to dress them up. We, we might have learned how to clean them off just a little bit. But we realize the truth that you can, you can dress up, you can clean up a pig, for example. You can do it all you want. But on the inside, it's still a pig. And it's going to go right back to the mud that it's accustomed to rolling around in as soon as it has an opportunity. It needs a transformation in order to keep it out of the mud. It needs a miracle from within. You, you can clean it up. You can make it look good for a temporary period of time. But if you want that change to be lasting, to be real, to be permanent, it's going to take a miracle from within in order to make that change. And in the same way, we need a change from within. We need a miracle from within. So this is a very clear and vivid picture here in the, the boys' problems. But I want to point out something to you. When Jesus entered the situation, and when the situation was described to him in verse number 18, Jesus had the power to fix and resolve the situation from the very moment that he entered in the situation. And actually, to be fair, he had the power to deal with it much before then. But you get my point. Jesus could have arrived and immediately dealt with this situation. He did not. Why was that? Well, I think there's something here in the heart and life of this father that he was trying to deal with. Now, this father knew there was a problem. He knew there was an issue. He knew something wasn't right. And he came to the right place. He was in the right place for the answer to his problems. And I wonder if there's some here this morning that you know there's, there's an issue. You know there's, there's a problem. And, 
And that's why you're here. I want to be in, in church. I feel like I need to, to go to church this morning because I feel like there's, there's, there might be an answer to my problem. You're in the right place. And this father, he brought his son to the right place. But Jesus didn't heal him right away because he was not ready for that healing right away. There was a work that Jesus wanted to do in this son's life. But there was also a work that Jesus wanted to do in this man's life. You'll notice three different requests that the father makes. The first request is there in verse 17, specifically at the end of 17, at the end of 18. Where he says, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And then he describes the issue. And at the end of verse 18, he says, And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. This is the deflecting plea. Now, he came with a desire to resolve this issue, but the way in which he asked was it was a a deflection. Did you catch it in his words? He basically said, Jesus, you need to help my son because your disciples could not. You'll notice in verse 17, he said, I brought him unto you. I brought him to you, and by extension, those followers of you. I brought the issue to you, and your disciples could not. They did not have the ability to do what I need to take place. In other words, his attitude is this. I'm fine, but it's my son that needs help. And it's your disciples who cannot deliver on what the need is. I brought them to you, and you have failed. So what are you going to do to fix this situation? That's the attitude that we sense from this, this father, this man. And there's a lot of people who approach salvation with this very same attitude. There's an awful lot of people, religious people, who view religion, they, they, they view God, they view the Bible as a them problem and not a me problem. This is what everyone else needs to do. And if everyone else would do this, if everyone else would do all the things that I am doing, then the problems that are around me, they would be solved and they would be fixed. They approach God's law. They approach God's standard. And God has a very explicit standard in which he says, this is righteousness, this is holiness. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is my standard. And we say, God, I don't like that. Your your standard is too high. I mean, my best should be good enough. I I believe that I'm a good person. I believe I do my very best to to help my fellow man. I, I believe that deep down inside, I'm really good. Thus, in essence, saying that if I'm not saved, it's your problem. See the deflecting plea? If if I'm not if I'm not acceptable to you. It's not my problem, it's your problem. I brought my son to you, Jesus, and and he is not healed. It's your problem, not my problem. There are some that say to God, well, God, you, you made me this way. You knew I was a sinner. You created me anyway. You knew I would have these desires. And so, God, you made me this way. God, this is your fault, not my fault. And man is ever in a quest to find ways 
to escape culpability and responsibility for their actions. I read an article this week of, of a Stanford University professor release, releasing his, his, uh, his pinnacle work and basically the entire idea is how he has proven that man has no free will whatsoever. We are just a collection uh, of, of atoms that, that we, we have no control over what happens in our lives. We do not make decisions. We do not decide what happens. We are just victims of our environment and victims uh, of, of, of random chance and processes, how that all works. So basically, we don't have any responsibility. So this issue of sin, see God calls it sin. This issue of sin is not with us. This you is with God. It's a deflecting plea. And I want you to notice the response of Jesus. How does Jesus respond to those who come to the come right to the miracle that they need in their lives and they have a deflecting plea? And they say, This is not really my problem, it's your problem, but I would really like it solved. How does Jesus respond? In verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Now, for years, I read this, and my assumption was that this statement, O faithless generation, this rebuke was spoken to the disciples because they didn't have enough faith in order to perform this miracle. I always thought that. But that's not what it says. That's not what the Bible says. Notice verse 19, he answered him and saith. He answered him. In Luke chapter 9, which is the parallel passage, we have this same statement of Jesus. And at the end of that statement, so he, makes the, he, he gives the rebuke, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? And then it says, bring thy son hither. Who is he talking to? He's not talking to the disciples. Jesus is looking in the eyes of this father and he rebukes him. He says, you are a part of a faithless generation. You are, in your faithless approach, you are trying the patience of God. That's literally what he's saying. That's what he means by how... how how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Or how long shall I bear with you and your faithlessness? The truth is that Jesus often saveth, he saves his harshest rebuke not for the obvious sinners as we might use the term, but he saves his harshest rebuke for those that are self-righteous. Who those, for those who, who don't think they need what Jesus wants to do in their life. That's the ones he rebukes the harshest. And this is a pretty harsh rebuke. To look at this father, I mean, after all the pain of this experience, the difficulty of this, and look him square in the eye and say, you are a faithless generation. How long am I going to have to put up with this? How much are you going to try the patience of God? And then as a result of this rebuke in verse 20, the situation only gets worse. See, before the father was describing what happened privately when the spirit would take, this, this demonic spirit would take control of his son. He was just describing, this is what happens. Let, let me tell you about it. But in verse 20, now it happens for the world to see. Now everybody's watching. 
And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground, wallowing and foaming. Now just do your best in your imagination to kind of see this picture. This is a bad a situation going from bad to worse. Things are getting much more tense and much more difficult. Which leads then, after Jesus in verse 21 asks, how long has this been the case? How long have you endured this? Leads to verse 21 and 22. It says, and oftentimes it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. And notice this phrase. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So this is no longer the deflecting plea. This is the doubting plea. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. This is the person who comes to salvation, that comes to the gospel, and they say, well, every, everybody's a sinner, and, you know, I'm just like everyone else. Have compassion on us and help us. The attitude is, if you really can do anything, if you have the capability of doing anything, if you can, would you please do something and help us? Now, this man had already come to Jesus. How could there be this doubt? How could be, there be this, this thought that, you know, if you can do anything? I, I thought he could. I thought that's why you brought him. You see, sometimes we think that we believe something and it's not actually what we believe, but it's our actions that really tell us and reveal for us what we actually believe. And this is the case here. Many, pre, many people approach salvation in the same way. They believe, but yet they don't really believe. They believe, well, everyone's a sinner, and, and so I guess I'm just like everyone else. And, but then you ask them, well, you know, if God were to, if God were to judge you for your sin and send you to an eternal hell because of the sin that you have committed, would he be just in doing so? And all of a sudden now, it goes from everyone's a sinner to, wait a minute, that's, that's a little bit too far. That's a little bit too much. I mean, have compassion on us. Help us. See the doubt that's there? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I've done the whole salvation thing. What if, I, what, if it, what if I come to, to be saved again and nothing happens? What if it doesn't work? Oh, I thought you said you believed it did, that this was the answer. So what you're saying is you really don't believe it does. Right. There's a doubt that's there. Right. This leads people to create formulas all right, I've got to have this much belief and, and this much repentance and, and I've got to have this feeling and I've got to have this particular message and it's all got to come together in this perfect sort of way for me to get saved. You know, I'm just trying to have enough faith. I'm just trying to have enough repentance. This is the doubting plea. We don't really believe that Jesus will do what he says he will do. And what does this lead Jesus to do in verse 23? It's not a rebuke this time. This time it's a challenge. And the challenge is this. If you can believe, all things are possible 
to him that believeth. That's a challenge. In other words, the ball's in your court. If you can believe, then this will happen. Can you imagine? All the eyes are now on this man. In fact, that's the image in verse 25. It says, when Jesus saw the people come running together, it's like the crowd is growing. People are like, hey, come on over here. You've got to see what's going on. And in the middle of this crowd, there's the Father and there's Jesus. And there's this boy in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a spiritual fit on the ground. And now all of that's faded away. It's quiet. And Jesus said, if you have enough faith, that's all you need. That's a challenge. And that leads to the third plea. We've gone from the deflecting plea to the doubting plea. And now in verse 24, we see the desperate plea. The desperate plea. It says, straightway the father of the child cried out. Do you see a change in attitude? Do you see a very clear change in perspective? He cries out with and said with tears. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Did you see the progression? He starts with, help my son. And by the way, the disciples, your disciples couldn't. Help my son. And then he says, have compassion on us. You know, help us. And then he says, help me. In other words, he came to the important conclusion that the problem is me. I'm the issue. It's not just your disciples. It's not just your son. I have a problem. I need help. It's not just my kids. It's not just my spouse. It's not just everyone else in the world. I have a problem. I need help. The problem is me. It's my sin of unbelief that's controlling me. It's my sin of unbelief that's bringing shame into my life. It's my sin that's destroying me. It's my sin of unbelief that is deserving of God's judgment. The problem is with me. I need help. And how does Jesus respond to that attitude? Before he rebuked him. Before he challenged him. But now how does Jesus respond to an attitude like that? An attitude that says the problem is me. I'm the one that needs help. Jesus does a miracle. There's healing. No more rebuke. No more challenge. Here's the help. Do you know that is exactly what needs to take place in every single one of our lives? We get to the place where we say, I am desperate. It's not everyone else around me that needs help. It's not everyone else that that needs the miracle of salvation. It is me. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. I need a Savior. I need Christ. That is salvation, my friend. This is the miracle that God wants to do in every single heart, in every single life. The problem is we've got to be brought to the position where we're ready to experience that miracle. As long as we are deflecting, as long as we are doubting, we're not ready for the miracle. Now it's on us. The problem is me. The issue is me. 
So we've gone from the boy's problem to the father's plea and now to the Savior's power. Because in verse 25, Jesus rebukes the idea of strong authority. He rebukes the spirit. He says, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. He acts authoritatively. He takes that sin and he says, Your time of ruling the situation is over. Your time of having free will, of taking and doing whatever you want with this boy, that time is over. That sin is gone. I'm taking it away, and I'm saying, you're not coming back. And you know what Jesus does when we come to salvation? He takes that slavery to sin, and he says, I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to cast it as far away as the east is from the west. It has no more power over you. Now, you're a servant of mine now. You're not a, you're not a servant of sin any, any longer. What we see is salvation. But the rub, the sticking point, is this. We have to get to the place where we're willing to voice the desperate plea. And not just voice it, but where we're in the position where we are desperate, where we do have the need. In other words, salvation really begins when we finish, when we're done, when we surrender. Really, you can take the entire concept of salvation and boil it down to that single word. Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to say, the problem is me? I need the help. It's not just my spouse. It's not just my kids. It's not just my family, my job, this situation, that situation. No, the problem is me. Like the Apostle Paul I think we see in his life a very clear example in Acts chapter 9. We're not going to turn there for sake of time, but most of you are familiar with that story. As he is riding to the city of Damascus and and that great light that God brings, it knocks him off his horse. He's on the ground. He says, who are you? And God says, I'm Jesus, in case you don't know. By the way, only God could knock you off the horse. So when he's heard, I am Jesus, I was like, okay, Jesus is God. Okay, I'm in trouble now. Because I've been persecuting Jesus on God's behalf. I'm in trouble now. God says, it's hard. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to to fight. So what are you going to do, Saul? Saul says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Completely turned away from what he was pursuing in the past. Complete 180 turn, change, difference. Jesus, you're in charge now. I wave the white flag, I surrender, I give up, the problem is me, fix me, help me. And you know, this is the place where God wants to bring every single one of you. Where your plea for help to God is not just a deflecting plea. God, you need to fix this situation, you need to fix this person. It's not just a doubting plea, well, if you can do anything... I'm not so sure, but if you can do something, now it goes to a desperate plea. I need you. Is there a time in your life where God brought you to that place? Where you came face to face with your own sin and your own need 
of Christ, your own need of salvation. And instead of it being everyone else's problem, it was your problem. And you said, God, I need help. God, I need you. God, I need what Christ did on the cross. Without that, I'm hopeless. I have nothing to commend myself to you. I have nothing to bring. And so I'm coming just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's all I have. And so I'm coming to you. And you know how Jesus responds when we come in that way? There's no rebuke. There's no challenge. He just says, now you're ready. I'm ready to heal. And I've got the power to heal. I've got the power to change your situation. I've got the power to bring into your life the miracle that you so desperately need. Now it's time for me to work. If you haven't experienced that in your life, today is the day. God wants to do this for you today. Amen.